This is the Dice Tower Network, adding games to your wish list since 2005. The home of smart people, insightful board gaming commentary, and Luke Hector. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. For episode 43, the first impressions will take a look at Valeria, Thunderbirds, and the Temple of Shock. With the whole Civil War craze now, my One More Game segment will focus on Marvel Legendary, and then, as a bit of an interesting new twist on my top 10, my top 10 dry games. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Broken Meeple podcast. I hope all of you had a really good tabletop day on Saturday. I know I did. Dice Portsmouth held another event at the Dockyards Action Stations in Portsmouth. And for that, I was there teaching games to loads of newcomers and showing off my deluxe Takinoko set, which always goes down well with new gamers and even, you know, old gaming veterans. You know, Takinoko is just one of those charming games that you just can't resist playing, especially when the panda is as big as your fist. It really is a spectacle to behold. But the day went really well and I'm glad to have joined in with that again. Cannot wait for that cafe to open. We are still hoping that they are able to meet their deadline for sometime during the summer of 2016. When it opens it's going to be a great location and hopefully maybe one that I'll be able to migrate the Portsmouth Game Club to. If not, well I'm sure I'll be there playing games and showcasing stuff anyway. With other news, the UK Games Expo is looming upon us. Yes, on the 3rd to the 6th of June, I believe, the UK Games Expo will be up and running again. I will be going for the full weekend. I will probably arrive on Thursday evening and leave on Sunday evening. And of course, I'll be looking at all the different publishers, designers, maybe doing the odd interview with the UK Gaming Network. I'd love to be involved with the Dice Tower in some way. It depends if Tom Vassell and Sam Healy need me for any reason. I don't know. I'm sure they're busy people. And, of course, I want to play as many games as I can, although, as we all know, the UK Games Expo is less about shop- sorry, less about gaming and more about shopping. The second-hand game stall is always a popular event. I hope they've enlarged the room for that, but I know that they have really increased the floor space with regards to the trade hall, so fingers crossed that this expo won't be quite as cramped as ones of the past. Other than that, things are fairly standard with regards to setting up for my new games room in the new house and, of course, doing the audio reviews, the segments, the starting tile segments for the Dice Tower and, of course, getting all my written reviews done with thanks from Estevium for their support. Uh, But there is a new audio review on the way that isn't on my site as coming soon and that's because, well, I didn't know I was going to finish it so soon and that is Pandemic Legacy. Yes, Pandemic Legacy has finally been completed by your truly and my friends and now I can give you a full spoiler free of course review of Pandemic Legacy. You will remember that I did my first impressions a little while back. Well, now I have played our 18 games of Pandemic Legacy and I can give my full opinion as to what I think in the game and whether it deserves its number one spot at the top of the Board Game Geek website. 
On that note, the Board Game Week website has had a bit of a revamp lately. The layout has changed quite dramatically. Personally, I quite like it. I think it looks a bit more modern. The toolbars are still there. The images are there. The designer information and that is easier to see, like the credits for the game. It's, all in all, not too bad. There's been a lot of complaints about it, and I don't know if they're fully justified. I mean, let's face it, the old version was pretty rubbish, so it's nice to get something new. I'm sure there's a few teething problems that some people have that I haven't noticed or don't tend to come across much, but all in all, I quite like the look of the new site. Unfortunately, that does not stop me being unable to look at the site at my workplace because my workplace is typical with office internet security and disables anything like Java and Flash, which means it's impossible to view anything on Board Game Geek. It's really irritating, but on the da- I'm sorry, on the plus side, I do at least have my mobile phone next to me, so it just means I have to use that to navigate Board Game Geek, which is not ideal, but it's better than nothing, I suppose. So, what's going on with today's episode? Well, I've got three first impressions for you for new games that I've tried during April, and also my one more game segment, which I said I was going to continue, given that Marvel's Civil War has just... Sorry, Captain America Civil War, let's get it right, has just been released, and I'm going to see it tonight. Hee-hee! <laughs> can't wait, I cannot wait. Um, but with the release of that, I figured Marvel Legendary itself would be a good one to use for the One More Game segment. And then my top ten. The top ten is going to be an interesting one today. Most people have always claimed, ah, well, you only like games that have got theme all over the place. You don't like any of the dry mechanical games. That's not entirely true, although they do have a point. I do tend to gravitate towards the games with strong themes, especially with Euros, but there are some fairly dry games, some ones with pasted themes and that, that I do like quite a bit. So, I will be going over my top 10 of those later on. You might be surprised at some of the games that turn up on there, and you'll probably be angry at some of the ones that don't turn up on there, but we'll get into that later. So, without further ado, let's commence with the proceedings. First impressions, here we go. First up is Valeria Card Kingdoms. This was a recent Kickstarter and has only just come out. It does for Mighty Koro what Thunderstone did to Dominion. It effectively takes a game which was bone dry and I say soulless even though I enjoy Dominion, I absolutely detested Mighty Koro, and essentially gives it a fantasy theme and a bit of an artwork upgrade. That it cannot be stated any less so that the artwork in Valeria is phenomenal. This is some of the best looking fantasy artwork I have seen. It is drop dead gorgeous. However, this is essentially Maichi Koro with a fantasy theme. You can kill a few monsters, you can grab a few locations, and essentially you've got a plateau of cards that you can buy that give you abilities based on rolling the dice. Except the difference to Maichi Koro is that whereas in Maichi Koro you took the total number you rolled, In this one, you take each single dice and the total of the two dice rolled. So you'll effectively have possibly three different things going off, or maybe two, it depends what you roll. Now, has this improved the original formula of Mighty Coral? Bearing in mind, I detest Mighty Coral. Yes and no. Yes, it's an improvement. You know, the fantasy theme gravitates towards me a bit more. The artwork is a lot nicer to look at. And you do get a few options for what you can do. However, it is still essentially roll the dice 
and see what happens. There's no strategy you can really go for. Tactics are fairly minimal. The choices are kind of based on what you roll. And if somebody rolls better than you or more conveniently than you, then they will win. You know, short and simple. In fact, I was able to win my game of Valeria and it was by complete fluke. A other person rolled better than I did throughout the whole game and essentially managed to munchkin it all the way. The only reason I was able to beat him was because I got lucky at stealing one of his monsters from him with a location I used and just happened to draw his best monster. That was it. It all went south because of one lucky draw. And before then, the dice basically dictated everything. On top of that, yeah, you get to go kill monsters and you get to go buy locations. That's quite nice. You've got free resources, military might, you've got gold, and you've got magic. The magic is a problem here because military might is used to kill the monsters. Gold is used to buy the locations and the various class cards like Paladin and Thief and so on. But magic can be used for both. You can substitute magic for either of the two things, providing you have at least one token of the resource you're substituting for. Now, getting one token of something is dirt simple. I mean, you'd have to roll catastrophically bad to not have one of the other two things, which means that magic is twice as good as gold and military might, because it can be used for both. It's far more flexible. So certain classes like the cleric and the paladin that generate a fair chunk of magic, and even the wizard's not too bad at doing it, are actually better to have than a lot of the other characters. I mean, the knight gives you one military might. Woo. You know, the cleric gives you three. Three. And some will say, well, you know, there's a six for the knight and there's only a one for the cleric. Well, you have to roll the six for the knight, you have to roll the one for the cleric. It's still a one in six chance. Granted, you can't add two dice up in order to get one, but free magic is a hell of a swing. I mean, if you've bought several of the clerics, which is not too difficult to do, then as soon as you roll that one on your turn, which is going to come up pretty often, then that is a ton of magic that can be used for a lot of stuff. Magic just seems to be a bit too powerful compared to the other two resources, and for a lot of the game, I was suffering for not using it. You know, I wanted to see what happens when you ignored it based on that ruling, and wow, it makes a colossal difference to ignore it. So, is Valeria a good game? To be honest, it's okay. I mean, I will play this rather than Machikoro. I won't touch Machikoro with a barge pole. But Valeria, just because of the artwork and because you've got more ways to activate through the dice, I'll probably play it again more. I still think it goes on a bit long for what it is, you know, just chucking dice and seeing what happens. And, you know, it's okay. I don't mind it, but I don't think it's great. I mean, you almost could call this a lawsuit game because it literally does just copy Mighty Koro and replace it with fantasy. Apart from that, there's very little difference. It is, you know, you... I almost thought the designer ought to be sued at one point because I just thought this was just a carbon copy of Mighty Koro. But it is a nicer looking and a more interesting version of Mighty Koro. However, it's not going to be one that I'm going to drag out from anywhere to play when I see it in the library because, to be honest, if I want one of these types of games that uses dice to activate special things, I'm going to just continue with Dice City. It's a superior game by far. So, Valeria, Card Kingdoms, meh.
Next up is a cooperative game, and normally cooperative games are ones that I really like, or at least will gravitate towards to more. However, this was one that a friend of mine in Southampton brought in, which was the new Thunderbirds game by Matt Leacock. Now, I was not the biggest fan of Thunderbirds when I was young. I didn't really watch the puppet shows like Stingray and that. Granted, Team America is one of the funniest films of all time, but that's because it's based on South Park humour as opposed to puppetry wizardry, even though the two go together so well and created just one of the best comedies ever. But Thunderbirds, meh, I didn't really care too much about the original series. I mean, it was incredibly cheesy, incredibly camp, and I didn't really care about puppets. So, was the co-op going to interest me? Well, cooperative games are the genre I love, so it was definitely worth a try. Here, it is essentially Thunderbirds, the movie, the board game. You essentially have your various vessels, Thunderbird 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you know, however many they were. You have all the iconic characters from the series, and they're represented by little pegs that go into these different moulds, these plastic moulds, that represent all the different vessels. And it's quite cool that you can actually take the roof off, I think, Thunderbird 4, whatever the big green thing is, the carrier. You know, you can actually take the roof off and put a couple of tokens in there to show that it's carrying it. I thought that was quite a neat little thing. It kind of reminded me of the components you get in things like Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Island. But in all, all you are basically doing is moving around the global map and rolling dice based on the catastrophe that you're trying to avert there. Essentially, a row of cards will constantly replenish with various catastrophes that essentially just mean roll these particular roll this stat line. And you get bonuses to your roll based on what people you have there, what equipment you've built and set up there, what uh, you know characters are being used or shipped off in other places. So it's a neat little balancing trick of having to get the right thing at the right place at the right time in order to make the catastrophes easier. However, if you get overloaded with these catastrophes, then you lose the game. And all the while, there is this track at the top with, I can't remember, is it the the Dark Moon or High Moon? I can't remember. The the bad guys, basically, who are, you know, this model moves along a track. And when it gets to certain stages, you end up with a, like, a major catastrophe happen. And if it gets too far along the track before you have completed the various schemes, which are effectively just like the normal uh, disasters, except it requires a bit more effort, then you lose the game. Complete free schemes, and you win. Now, again, I wasn't blown away by this one either. It feels like Matt Leacock's kind of running out of ideas, because some people will say that this is essentially another pandemic, I'm not sure I would necessarily call it a pandemic clone. I mean, the mechanics are slightly different to pandemic, but you did get that slight feeling that, like, you know, we're just regurgitating everything again for this co-op. It also just seems like a bit of a cash grab for the, you know, to use for the Thunderbirds because essentially it was the 50th anniversary of the Cult Hitch TV show. So, you know, whenever you get the anniversary of something, you always have an excuse to make a game or a movie out of it. And here, it's pretty basic. You just run around the map and roll dice. If the dice roll well for you, you will win. If the dice roll badly for you, you will lose. It is pretty much down to that. Sure, there's a bit of planning that goes into it with the various equipment and that, but you get to a point where it's pretty easy to figure out what you should be getting at at what time, so it really just comes down to mitigating the dice luck with regards to the bonuses. Other than that, this game is really only for people who I think are absolute fans of the show. 
because all the cards have got actual still footage, you know, movie still footage from the show. So if you want a nostalgia trip for Thunderbirds, this is a pretty good way to go. It's very simple. I'm sure your kids could get into this fine. So it's a good family way. I suppose I could call it a gateway game. It certainly doesn't require much in the way of depth or strategy in order to do it. But if you like Thunderbirds, this one is decent enough to go for. I still don't think it's going to blow your mind. I don't think it's going to wow you. But you'll at least find it enjoyable and you'll bring back some memories of Thunderbirds when you were little. But for me, because I'm not a fan of the original Thunderbirds, I didn't really get into the whole Thunderbirds vibe while I was playing this. So I could only really look at the mechanics and they were pretty basic. Co-op games have to go up against a huge amount of competition now because there are so many of them I love and if a co-op game is merely meh or okay, it's not good enough. Co-op games have got to wow me now if they're going to compete against the likes of Ghost Stories, Legendary, Flashpoint, Sentinels in the Multiverse, Robbers and Crusoe, you know, those kind of things. It's got to be amazing. It can't just be okay. And Thunderbirds is just okay. I'm not really going to be that, you know, mad about playing it again in the future. So, if you're a fan, go for it. If not, I wouldn't worry too much. Thunderbirds. Okay, let's get off the negativity train and actually go for something that I actually thought was pretty good. And that was The Adventurers, The Temple of Shuck by AEG. I'd been looking for a copy of this game for a while, but I wasn't willing to pay the full price for it, and certainly I was never going to get a review copy, so I was hoping I'd just find it cheap sometime. Thankfully, a trip to Sorcon earlier this year meant that I could go around their second-hand store, and lo and behold, somebody was selling the Adventurous Temple of Shuck. Not in the best condition box-wise, but I was able to get it down to, I think, £15? Uh, yeah, I think it was £15 for an okay condition box, but you know the components were all in decent nick inside, so I was pretty happy. Got to try it recently, and it is essentially Indiana Jones, the board game. You are a group of adventurers running into a temple, trying to get as much treasure as you can, and get out before you die. And of course, there's various ways to die. You could get crushed by two closing walls, you could fall into a lava pit if you pick the wrong floor slabs, you can get crushed by this boulder that's running through, a la the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you can fall into a chasm, get swept off a waterfall, all these nasty little perils that you see in every single movie where somebody goes into a tomb. All we're missing, really, is mummies, I guess, but then this isn't really an Egyptian tomb, so they did away with monsters in this. But it's a very cool little light-hearted game. The components are quite nice to use you know you've got like a 3d wall you've got floor tiles this is aeg so it was a you know pretty decent effort by them although i think the copy i got wasn't aeg i have a feeling that the one i've got was actually fantasy flight which is kind of weird because i think fantasy flight games must have taken it over from aeg so i know aeg did it originally but my one was fantasy flight but i think the components were still pretty much the same really and with this, you are running through, you've got little puzzles that you can do where you can search slabs and look at the icons and think, oh, do they match the ones on the lava floor, right? Do not step on those, they're traps. You can pick the locks of various little vaults that are in the temple, but all the while, you have got to stay ahead of this boulder that has its own route. That's ran it's random how far it moves each turn. And essentially, if it gets to the very end, before you can get out of the temple, you're blocked in and you die anyway. You've got two lives, you've got two adventurers, the 
it's got a neat little system where your spare adventure is flipped over as a reference card and you use your character to basically mark down how much load you're carrying, how many actions you'll get, because the more you carry, the heavier it is, the less you can do, which is a neat little thematic mechanic. And it's just very light-hearted. You're just basically playing Indiana Jones the board game and everybody's making quotes and references and humming the theme tune and all sorts while they're going through and you just can't help but laugh at your own misfortune like as a as you go through that lava pit particularly if you didn't take the time to search for every single trap icon that was there then you are going through that lava pit as a shortcut and thinking, uh, do I go on that one? Come on, flip it over. <sighs> oh, that's it. We're good. And then you laugh your head off at your friend who basically goes and does the whole Indiana Jones thing out of the Last Crusade. You know, Jehovah starts with an I. Jake. And it's just a good laugh when that happens. It's very lighthearted. You're not meant to take it seriously. It's just a bit of a laugh for about 45 minutes the game will take because... You know, the one flaw I can think of with the game is that it takes a little bit to explain the rules. The rules themselves aren't complicated, but you've got to explain how each room works before you go into it. So it's if you're not really crystal clear on the rules, it may take a little while to explain the game. But it doesn't take too long to play it. It goes up to six players. It doesn't like drag out with six players. It scales fairly well. And all in all, it's a bit of light-hearted fun if you're a fan of Indiana Jones or Tomb Raider or anything that's similar to that. I don't know what the other one is, but I hear that the Temple of Shock is the preferred one. I think the other one was the um, Pyramid of Horus or something like that. But everybody who I've spoken to tends to say the Temple of Shock is the best one. So I'm just going to stick with that. It will sit in my collection for a bit. It was a nice cheap game and I'll bring it out for light-hearted events. So, the Adventurers, the Temple of Shock. It's time for the One More Game segment, and, well, with Marvel Civil War being released now, I figured it was fitting to go back to Marvel Legendary, the original deck-building game where you get to take a team of superheroes from the Marvel Universe and set them up against a mastermind and various villain groups in a traditional deck-building style and basically do what you do best. Save bystanders, beat up the villains kill the mastermind, well, subdue him anyway, I'm not entirely sure if you actually kill him, and win the day. You've got all these different schemes that change how the scenario plays out. You've got masterminds galore. You have got heroes coming out of your ears with the amount of expansions that have come out for this. You know, I've got almost every expansion to date. The only one I think I missed out on was Fear Itself, the villain's mini expansion. And the only reason for that was because the Fear Itself comic strip, I well, I don't read the comics, I am contemplating subscribing to Marvel Unlimited and maybe catching up on a few comics, particularly as I've just recently acquired the Secret Wars expansion to this, and I know nothing about what's going on in Secret Wars, so a lot of these characters are like, who on earth is this weird captain dude riding a T-Rex? I mean, seriously, what? You know, I almost think Marvel was smoking a bit when they came up with some of these characters. But it looks like fun, and I'm tempted to read those comics. But 
basically, with Fear itself, I didn't recognise anything, and it didn't really sound like I'd be interested in that villain group anyway, so I skipped that one. It was a small mini-expansion, big deal. I've got all the big box ones, and I've got the Spider-Man one, I've got the... Uh, what else we had? The Guardians of the Galaxy one, that was a great one. i got the Fantastic Four one, and... It's just been released in the UK this week, actually. The Captain America 75th Anniversary one. I hope to get that and maybe do a small review on it or something. That would be quite good with the whole Civil War theme. And, again, I reckon the Captain America one will be a very nice little set as well. I do really like these thematic ones where they focus on a specific character. I think it would be really cool if they did an X-Men one in the future. Um, I know I think they're doing a Deadpool one in the future. That will be okay, I guess. I mean, I love the Deadpool movie. That was funny as hell and it was really cool but I'm not a massive fan of the whole Deadpool lore so you know I love the movie but don't not too fussed about the legendary set for it but knowing me I'm sure I'll get it for completionist's sake that's if I don't already get the fear itself again for completionist's sake anyway enough blabber of that essentially it's a deck building game except that you don't have your own hero as your deck like Sentinels in the Multiverse you are getting a random selection of the hero cards that are all shuffled together and you will build your deck using the heroes you're looking to combo the icons and the various abilities and maybe support your team with their abilities and defeat the mastermind now you can play this as a almost semi co-op where the you work together as a team but whoever had the most victory points wins i can't think of anybody who uses that rule and honestly shame on you if you do because this should be played as a full co-op. Forget the stupid victory point rule for winning. You're working as a team. You are Marvel superheroes. They are not bragging about who did the best when they win in the movies. They're just glad that they subdued the villain. So play this as a full co-op. Now I've had this for a long time and I must admit it's very high in my top 75 list but I haven't played it for a while and I'm sort of wondering why. And I suppose the main crux of why I haven't is because of the setup. Setting up these deck builders takes up a fair bit of time when you do it. It doesn't matter that I've arranged it nicely with all these cool dividers laminated and that. It still takes a while to choose your heroes, get them shuffled together, get the villain group, shuffle them together, get your character basic cards and then shuffle them together and then get the mastermind and then get everything else. It just takes a bit of a while to set up and sometimes that's off-putting because you've got to spend that time setting up whilst doing the rules and you know then eventually play the game also i used to play it solo a lot in fact i've probably played it solo more than i have in the group but the solo mode is not perfectly designed in the rule book and you have to use one of the variants that are on board game geek and even then i'm not convinced those solo variants are that great they just don't seem that balanced or they change the system too much for my liking so personally now if i play it by myself i'm playing it free-handed and of course trying to operate three different hands can get a little bit problematic at times so now i'm trying to up the amount of times i play this with a group of mates in order to get more fun out of it but of course all the Marvel superheroes are there. The theme is here and there. You are building a team, effectively. Just imagine your shield and you're recruiting all of them, like the Avengers, shall we say. But it's cool to have all your iconic heroes in there, and they all do stuff that suits their abilities, whether it's the wall-crawling thing with the Spider-Man gang, or busting people and taking wounds regardless of who takes it with the Hulk and you know rescuing bystanders and defending the innocent with Captain America and Black Widow for example 
So there's some really cool synergies that you can do, and this sheer amount of choice in this game is ridiculous now. And that's not even before you add legendary villains in there, which I've done, which essentially takes the game, flips it on its head, and says that you are playing the villains against a commander, hero, and trying to do the exact same thing, you know, defeat the commander. But you can mix and match these heroes and villains to your heart's content. You know, Thor could team up with Loki and go up against Galactus, for example. You know, that they do, in a way. It's always a tentative uh, relationship, but, you know, that's the sort of thing. Marvel is just ripe for the heroes and villains to put aside their differences temporarily to fight somebody who's more of a threat than they are. It's great that you can do that, and it ups the variety in this game to ridiculous levels. It's so mad, the amount of combinations there are. I'm sure some Sadak has worked it out somewhere by using maths and stuff, but it's not something I really care about. I just know that I will never play every combination in this game. I haven't even come close to doing that. But the setup is a problem, and it does sometimes put me off playing it. Not enough to make me want to stop playing it altogether, you know, I mean, I've got the other legendary games and they have the similar issue. So maybe I just need to get better at setting up the legendary games, you know, have a better system in place. But when you do set it up, it is a really fun game. I do enjoy Marvel Legendary a lot. That's why it was in my top 20 for the top 75 list, and I'd be surprised if it didn't end up in my top 30, I suppose, for the top 100 that I intend to do this year later on. Ooh, blimey, actually, we're getting into the summer. I'm going to have to start thinking about that top 100 soon. Yikes. There's a lot of work that goes into those. But Legendary Marvel is still a really fun game. It's just I'm not playing it as much solo, and I'm trying to get more group you know, mates to play it. And, of course, there's a lot of games to play, so you can only play it so often. But, of course, you have to take into the fact that the setup time is a bit long, and the player scaling is not perfect. If you play this with four or five players, you are asking to lose and lose hard because you just don't get enough time to set up. With two players, it varies, but it tends to be a bit easy. But two players isn't too bad. Three is the absolute sweet spot. And I suppose that's another thing that gets in the way sometimes. You really want to play this with three players. And of course, when you restrict it like that, you won't always have three convenient players that can just play it because obviously that's you and two others. But it's worth it when it is done. It's simple to learn. The new mechanics they bring in are not complicated, even though maybe some of the uh, Secret Wars Volume 2 stuff does go a little bit weird with all this cross-dimensional rampage stuff. But the rule books are pretty clear, and the game is still fun, much like the Legendary Alien and Predator one. And even though I still think Legendary Alien is a better-designed game, I still think Legendary Marvel is a really fun game to play, and being a Marvel fanboy all the way... Even though I like DC, I am definitely a Marvel fanboy. I will be enjoying this game for a long time. So, Marvel Legendary, one more game? Oh yes. Okay, the top 10 this week is top 10 dry games, and this is going to be one of the most subjective lists I have ever done, because the definition of dry in a game is going to be subject to all sorts of different debates and opinions, and what is the difference between a dry game and a pasted theme game, where the theme is there but it's so thinly veiled you could replace it with anything? But then how does that differ from a dry game? 
Is a dry simply just abstract games, or is a dry game one that has a theme but it's like pretty much non-existent? Where do you draw the line? So I expect to probably get a bit of garbage for this list in what I've put on it and how I've sort of defined what is a dry game. But basically, I'm going with the idea that the theme is super duper light, that you can pretty much wipe it off the plate and it would make no difference. I don't even mean that you would replace it with a different theme. I just think you could actually wipe off the theme, make it an abstract game, and I would still enjoy it because of the mechanics in it are just that good. So this is going to be subject to a lot of debate afterwards, I suspect, but I wanted to do this list or something similar because getting the typecasted stereotype of I only like games that have a strong theme is getting a little grating because, yes, I do like games with a lot of theme, but that does not mean that every single dry game that comes out I cannot stand. It's just that I don't particularly like Stefan Feld, but we'll get into that a bit later. So, top 10 dry slash pasted theme slash whatever I've put on this list games. Number 10 is, oh my god, a Stefan Feld game. Yes, there is actually a Stefan Feld game that I do like. And spoiler alert, this will be the only Stefan Feld game on the list. But Stefan Feld has made one game that I do like a lot. Even though the theme is pretty much non-existent on this game, this is about as dry as a bone as you can get. I mean, well, actually, no surprise there. Stefan Feld is dry as a bone regardless of what game he makes. And this is Amerigo. Amerigo, the game where you are supposedly sailing your ships to various islands and placing your settlements on there and getting cannons to fend off pirates and getting points on various different tracks. Yeah, that's pretty much Stefan Veld in a nutshell. It's lots of point tracks and a bit of a point salad. The theme is non-existent here. There is nothing to suggest that you are exploring these islands or anything. You are literally just moving your pieces around and laying down tiles. And the main reason I like this game is because of the cube tower mechanic. The cube tower, which has no relevance to anything that's going on in the game whatsoever, but it's just cool that you drop your action cubes in there, and depending on what comes out, dictates not only how many actions you have, period, but also the different types of actions you can choose from. It's a very neat mechanic. I'd love to see the cube tower used in a lot of other Euros, but I suppose the problem with the cube tower is that you can't really make it that thematic when you put it in any game, but it's a great little mechanic here, and yes, Stefan Feld has made a game I like, and that is Amerigo. Number 9 might get me a little bit of garbage because some people may argue that there is a bit of a theme there when you look for it, and yeah, in a sense there is, but you have got to look very hard to find the theme in this game. Nonetheless, this is one of the best gateway worker placement games I can think of out there, and I'm going to put a caveat here that the expansion isn't present for this one. The expansion ups the theme a tiny bit, but you know, not to a great level, it just improves the game dramatically. But certainly, if you were to take the base version of this only, it would really be a thinly veiled theme and pretty much be bone dry, and that's Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep has the D&D theme 
stapled on it by some very loose fitting staples it's really not needed you could wipe that theme off and replace it with just about anything and you could wipe the theme off entirely and i would still enjoy the game as a cool little abstract where you do the worker placement get the various cubes and use them to complete quests you're not even really thinking that you're picking up fighters or rogues or wizards you're just basically picking up whatever the quest requires and you play a few cards with special powers but even then this theme is pretty light. However, it's one of the best worker placement games out there for gateway gamers and worker placement is not the easiest thing to find something that actually works as a gateway game. So, you know, some people actually argued with me recently that Pillars of the Earth was a gateway worker placement game. What planet are you on? Seriously? But Lords of Waterdeep, definitely a gateway game for worker placement and my number nine. Number eight is a Reiner Knizia game. Yes, even Reiner Knizia has made a game I like. And spoiler alert, this is the only Reiner Knizia game on the list. You can tell I'm not a huge fan of Stefan Feld and Reiner Knizia. Well, to be fair, I do like a lot of thematic games, and these two designers basically shove theme out the window and don't care less about it when they make games. Feld just goes one step further than Reiner Knizia and then makes his games really boring. But in all Ryan's sake, Let's focus on the one here, and that is Tigris and Euphrates. Tigris and Euphrates is pretty close to being a straight-up abstract game, but it puts a thinly-veiled theme of the whole external conflict and internal conflict, or wars and revolts, as they're put now. But you're essentially putting down different colored tiles, and when they meet up on a map, they interact in various ways, and you're basically just trying to get points in the four different color categories, and your score is the lowest of the four categories. It's a cool scoring mechanic, so I do really like that, in the game but I like the mechanics that are involved with the whole revolts and the wars thing it's quite good the tiles and components are brilliant bear in mind I'm basing this on the fantasy flight version not the original version but you do get that annoying time when somebody just gets lucky and happens to have more tiles of a particular color than you when you go to do a war or revolt don't ask you why you have no way to predict this it just happens but the mechanics of Tigris and Euphrates are very good. It is pretty much an abstract game. It's a Reiner Knizia game, and it's one that I do enjoy despite the inherent dryness of it. It's in my collection even. And actually, do I have any other Reiner Knizia games in the collection? I'm not sure that I do. I, I know I got a few recently for that Knizia font, but I might need to sell those off at some stage. Anybody want some signed copies of Reiner Knizia games? I don't know. Let me know. Anyway, number eight, Tigris and Euphrates. Number seven is an auction filler game, and auctions are not something I generally like. I mean, let's face it, I can't stand Power Grid, but auctions are alright if they're quick, fast bidding games, which Power Grid isn't. But the one I'm talking about here is Biblios. Biblios's theme is completely pointless. There is nothing to suggest that anything remotely related to the theme is going on in the game mechanics, and it's not even a more interesting theme anyway. Woo, I'm a bunch of monks scribing books. Wow. You know, that's pretty lame for a theme. But this is a really cool quick auction filler game where you are bidding for cards, or, well, the second half anyway. The first half is you are drawing cards from a deck and you are deciding that you want to keep one card 
you want to auction one off later, and you're giving your opponents the other two. The idea is that there are five different colour categories with a varying score. Some cards might up the score of it, some cards may lower it, and you're trying to get the highest amount of value cards in that particular colour category to win the dice, which represents how many points you get. It starts off as free across the bat, but cards will come out that will up it or lower it, so some categories become worthless, some categories become highly sought after. But once you get in the second half of the game, you then auction off all those cards that were set aside earlier, and the auctions are very fast, very quick, and just done, done. Next card, done. Next card, done. Next card, done. You know, really quick and fast. And it's a really cool little thinky filler that just seems to work surprisingly well, despite the fact that I don't normally like auctions, and despite the fact that this has pretty much no theme whatsoever. So Biblios, my number seven. Number six is a game that I was first introduced to at last year's UK Games Expo. I even had a chance to play with a designer, Matthew Dunstan, who's a decent bloke, and I really do enjoy this game. It is in my collection. It's fallen a bit down the wayside for me in recent months, possibly because it's difficult to uh, go back to it after you've been away for a while, rules-wise. But it's a really cool sort of tableau building mechanic with a hint of drafting thrown in and that is Elysium. Elysium is based on Greek gods and things like that but to be honest it's basically cards with special powers. The whole thing of the pillar mechanic isn't really particularly thematic and you're building families and quote-unquote legends but effectively you're just trying to get cards numbered from one to three and or, or matching pairs you know that kind of thing. So you're just set collection basically but the pillar mechanic of how you choose your various cards that you do is really cool and really gets you thinking hard you've only got those four color pillars and you have to get three cards and one quest quote unquote which is effectively just what bonus do you want at the end of the round and what turn order do you want and the way that it just makes you think so hard because as soon as you take anything you have to get rid of a pillar of your choice and then that limits what you can do in the rest of the round and you've got to watch what everyone else is doing such a cool mechanic I really like how that works and I would love to see that repeated in another game but of course the theme is pretty light you don't feel like a green god you know the player powers sort of relate to the gods but it's pretty thinly veiled I'm sure you could easily replace the theme with not too much here so it's a fairly dry game but it's a solid one and worth checking out if you haven't already because I'm not sure it's getting a lot of buzz anymore since last year. That is Elysium. Number five is a great example of a bag building game where you essentially take cubes, put them in a bag, draw some out, and then that represents what you can do in the round. Some of you are probably thinking of Oleons or Automobiles. Nope, not thinking of those two. Automobiles is a racing game and I don't find it to be particularly dry. And Oleons, I think is okay, but it could use some improvement. Nope, this one is the super dry Hyperborea. Hyperborea, you have a map, you have your miniatures, and technically you're a different faction on this planet that's in war, but effectively you are just drawing cubes out of a bag and doing various actions. You can level up various technology tracks in order to, or sorry, development tracks, you know, I'm doing a lot of quote-unquote here, and 
you can get more cubes of particular colors, some let you move, some let you attack, some let you uh, get technology, some let you trade for money and victory points, that kind of thing. And it's a really cool system and a really cool game. Looks the business, you know, I think this is a... I've got a feeling this is a Fantasy Flight one, or is it not? No, I don't think it is a Fantasy Flight game. But the components in it are solid, and the gameplay is really good. But it's very dry. You could replace the theme with just about anything. They tried to flag it up, and a lot of people got annoyed with this game because of the front cover of the box, which looks gorgeous, but also gives off the wrong impression as to what this game is. Everyone walked into it thinking it was going to be this Amerifrash thematic, you know, cluster... You know, but the it turned out to be a bag-building Euro, and pretty dry. But it's a really cool game nonetheless, so don't be fooled by the cover, but don't be put off either. This is a solid bag-building game, and very dry. Number 5, Hyperborea. Number four is the game that started the whole deck building craze. Yes, this is the driest deck builder that ever lived. But it was also the first, or the first major one anyway, got a lot of the awards and deservedly slow, um, slow, so, but it's a really solid deck builder and that is Dominion. When do you ever feel the cards in Dominion are that thematic? Granted, some of them try in the later expansions, but particularly the base set. Do you ever play the village and wonder why it gives you two more actions? Do you ever play this particular card and wonder why it gives you a buy and a gold and a draw cards? Yeah, no, this game is not thematic in any sense of the word. It is a dry deck builder, but it's one that you can just pick it up, get it set up and go, you know, really nice and quick if you know what you're doing. Teaching new players that will hesitate a bit, but when you know how to play Dominion, you can play it nice and quick, get it out, use a different card set, lots of variety. It's a solid, easy gateway deck building game and super, super, super dry. It's great to have with about three or so expansions, I think is the most you really need. I think collecting every single expansion is a bit overkill unless you play this religiously. For me, I've got, I think, Seaside and Hinterlands and Guilds, I think, and that's an... Oh, and Intrigue. Technically, that's a base set, but still, I've got those expansions. I have no interest in picking up any of the others. I'm happy with what I've got. So, Dominion, number four. Number three, and in case you didn't think I had that many heavy games on the list, although to be honest, Elysium and Tigris and Euphrates and Hyperborea, they can be pretty heavy. But here's the heaviest game on this list, and it is bone dry despite the fact they tried to shove a fantasy theme on here, but it is still a really cool heavy Euro game, and that is Terra Mystica. Terra Mystica is bone dry. Don't even try to say that there is a theme here. You have your various fantasy races, but that's just basically a special power and cool variety. But on the board, you're just putting in a bunch of shapes on the board to represent buildings. All the different like areas of the map are like separated in convenient hexagons. And you've got these purple little strips or pills or whatever that are supposed to represent power that grants you extra abilities like building bridges and stuff yeah i'm really not explaining the theme that well here and that is the case terra mystica is a super dry heavy euro but it's a really cool heavy euro with solid mechanics gets you thinking all the way through there's a lot of variety with all the different races 
and the expansion up the game a little bit more in my estimation with some of the new races which you can argue they are a little bit powerful but you know you can always give them to the newer players and some other aspects like some extra objectives and that which also helped not the best expansion ever but the base game is still solid on its own Terra Mystica still remains high in my expectations number three Number two, and you could almost call this a straight up abstract game as well because the whole idea that it's based on technologies is really thinly veiled. I mean, you could just make this a straight up abstract game with symbols and special powers and that'd be it. That's all you need. You don't even have to say they're technologies. You could just call them card A, card B and whatever, but I wouldn't care because the game is so much fun to play with two, three players max, four is a bit much, but it's a wonderful game and that is innovation. Innovation, you are supposedly leveling up technologies from age 1 to age 10. But basically all you are doing is placing down cards, trying to get as many of the different symbols as you can and as many of certain ones as you can and triggering the special powers on the various cards that allow you to either get cards or level yourself up to different ages or mess with opponents or get you points, that kind of thing. But yeah, the theme is pretty much non-existent here. This is a straight-up dry, fast, well, I say fast, fast with two players, but really cool, thinky, and heavily tactical two-player game, ideally. Three players, not too bad, but it's a really cool little tableau game with lots of cool little combos that you can do, and the game state changes rapidly at times where you think you're behind, and then suddenly you leap ahead and grab one of the special win conditions or something like that. It's a really cool game. Love it to bits. I only wish I could get it out more often, particularly with the expansion, which does put it into well, it's not a gateway game anyway, but when you put the expansions with it, oh my god, this is turning into a heavy mass thinking game. I would love to get Innovation Deluxe, but no, Asmadi can't sell it to the UK because of Yellow's copy, you know, copyright or patent things. So that's really annoying because I really would like Innovation Deluxe, but the shipping cost, well, there is no shipping cost. They can't physically sell it to the UK, so I can never get it. Anyway, rant over. Innovation, fantastic game, number two. Before we get to number one, here are the honourable mentions. Hanabi. Hanabi is a great little filler co-op, but the whole concept that you are building a fireworks display? Yeah, what theme is that? It's not even an interesting theme, but it's a cool little co-op game where you have your cards facing away from you and only your teammates can see them and you have to give each other clues about what they are in order to play some cards down in colour and numerical sequence. It's dry as a bone, but it's a really fun co-op game that can be played between two and five players with good scaling all the way throughout, makes a very good travel game, Hanabi. Russian Railroads. You do not feel like you're building a train track in this game. It is super bone dry, it is unbelievable. You could basically lick the board and your tongue would be frayed because it would feel like sandpaper. It would be that dry. But the mechanics in here are solid, it gets you thinking, and there's a lot of different ways to play the game. I will stress that the main way to play this game though is with the German Railroads expansion. That is a fantastic expansion to add variety in the game, which the base game lacks a little bit on. But if you get that expansion, this is one hell of a great dry Euro. And like I say, super dry. Russian Railroads. 
Carcassonne. Yeah, the original gateway game of Carcassonne. It's bone dry. Yeah, you build the map, but the robber, the knight, the monk, is basically put your meeple on the board and it scores points. It's not particularly thematic, but it's really nice how you build the map and how nice it looks when you do it and how the map always changes from game to game. The expansions add some cool little extras and it's still one of the best gateway games out there to show people Euro games and tile lane as a mechanic. So you can't beat some of the classics, Carcassonne. Okay, on to the number one. This is a drafting game. There's a little hint for you. And even though some people like to think that the theme works with this, and yes, it does, it's still really thinly veiled to the point where you're not even caring about what the name of the card is. You're just looking at the symbols and the colors and trying to get it in your tableau for really cool combos to be done and getting a lot of points. Yep, the all-ever-classic Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders is a great drafting game. Gateway, I'm not convinced it's a gateway game, but it's kind of a next step. All that iconography does put a lot of new players off, but it's certainly an easy game to get into once you're used to games from the base set, but then I prefer to play this with the expansions like Leaders and Cities and Babel, which was really good, and even the promo, well, not promo, that little mini expansion of Wonders. I've got them all. I've got a great insert for the game from Broken Token, and this still is a really good, fun game to play. I'm getting a little bit burned out on the base game only because a lot of people don't have the expansions but when I bring my seven wonders I'm like yeah come on we've got to throw in leaders we've got to throw in cities we've got to throw in Babel let's make this an epic seven wonders game and it's highly entertaining I really like this and of course it's a dry game you can't say that this is a thematic game Woo! I built the baths gets me five points hey I built the archery range gets me a shield Woo! I built the marketplace I can trade for cheaper you know it's that's probably the most thematic out of the cards in the whole game, actually. But everything else, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's just the wonders give you special abilities and the cards combo in certain ways. It's not thematic. It's dry. But it is one of the best drafting games out there in existence and definitely deserves the number one spot, Seven Wonders. And we get to the end of the episode, and my throat already feels quite dry as it is anyway. I really should have made a drink before I made this podcast, but oh well, I suppose it goes with the whole theme that this was meant to be about a dry top 10 list. Now, I know that top 10 list is very subjective in what you consider dry and themeless and that, and maybe there are some other ones that people would have mentioned that I would either disagree with or just say that aren't as good or fun, but that's... That's a subjective list for you, and I look. I want to see what other people think are dry, and maybe what are their top ten dry games. You know, I could have. Well, I, I mean, I can think of dry games off the top of my head. You know, Quadropolis is a fantastic new game. That's fairly dry. You know, the theme is not entirely there. Uh, Lagrania has some thematic elements with the cards, but that whole marketplace thing where you put your little discs there and it knocks other discs off with a lower number rating, yeah, that's pretty bone dry. Alhambra is a cool little game, but, you know, very dry as well. Spirium, you could argue that's fairly dry, although I think the supply and demand thing there kind of bumped it off this list in the sense that I think that's fairly thematic how that works, even though the rest of it is fairly dry. 
And I mean, what else is there that I could think of? You know, Citadels isn't you know that it's not overly fanatic. San Juan is not the most fanatic game ever. Uh, what else have we thinking of? Five Tribes, yeah, that's fairly dry, uh, but um, it didn't quite make the list. I wasn't entirely certain whether to put that on or not. And so, yeah, there's a lot of choices where people would come up with dry games, and this list would be a lot easier if I actually liked anything by Reiner Knitzier and Stefan Feld. I had one game of each on the list, but trust me, there's very few Reiner Knitzier games I like, and there's probably even less Stefan Feld games that I like. I would love to just go with the masses and put something like Food Chain Magnate on this list or Madeira or some of those other really bone-dry games, but I don't particularly like those games. Well, Madeira was alright, but it was never going to make a top 20, let alone a top 10. And Food Chain Magnate, yeah, you know how much I hate that game, so I won't go into it now. So, that's it for me. I better get on with the rest of my day and get this edited and posted up. Hopefully in time for some dinner and then heading off to watch Marvel Captain America Civil War later this evening, which, yes, I cannot wait. Tickets are booked. I've been waiting for this for so long. I've heard all the good reviews. I know I am going to love this movie. It is not going to disappoint me. I cannot cannot wait to watch this film so maybe i'll put up a little review on facebook when i'm done if you want to look at my blog page or just my normal facebook page i'll put up my thoughts about it what am i going to do for the next episode no idea but look out for my pandemic legacy audio review i will be doing an audio review on kanban automotive revolution soon i intend to do a written review of the gallerist this week so you know you can look forward to my views on vital lacerda's new work and well there's the usual fun and games to come with my podcast and blog in general so that's it for me take care enjoy the rest of the uk bank holiday weekend i hope you had a fantastic tabletop day i know i had a blast i hope you did too playing whatever games you enjoy doesn't matter if i like them or not i just hope you enjoyed yourself i've got more games to play tomorrow in fact for bank holiday monday so call it two two pleasurable gaming days in one weekend it's gonna be great so that's it Take care, play all the games, have fun. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my podcast. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to find out more, you can check out the website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. Alternatively, you can chat to me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple or search for my Facebook page under, of course, The Broken Meeple. This podcast is dedicated to the gamers like you who play the games I love. So take care, have fun, and enjoy the hobby. You're listening to the Dice Tower Network. If you like this show, you might like Start Space or Push Your Luck Podcast. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. <laughs>